All right. So last week we were looking at illusions, and we were looking at the illusion of baptism. And one of the things that we were um, dealing with is, is this picture of going down into the water, coming up out of the water. We started with the book of Genesis, went through the Old Testament scriptures, and see how that illusion took place. Well, what I'm wanting to do is actually deal with this um, phrase about Christ living in us. But before actually doing that, I decided just last minute, last night, to deal with this aspect of Christ living within us. But before doing that, looking at this picture of crucifixion, right? The reason for that, I believe, is that when we look at the scriptures, we get to see this big picture of why baptism is so important to us, why we teach it so uh, dogmatically, if you will, is because of these symbols amongst other things like commands, as was brought out this morning. So last week we looked at the illusion, this week, or um, we also looked at the passage last week in Romans 6, right, when we were finishing the sermon, how we are told when we are baptized, we go down into the water and we are buried with him, with Christ, that is, with baptism. And that picture of that burial is the picture of Christ's death. And that picture in your mind should be a picture of his crucifixion. And that's very important for us when we understand what all is entailed with that. And then hopefully, by doing so, we get this understanding, right? And this understanding is going to be where we place focus on our being crucified with Christ. And it's both a need that we have, but a choice that is given to us. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we see this first half of the picture of Christ living in us. Well, notice this. If we can understand what that means for Christ to live in us, hopefully it'll affect how we walk, right? Isn't that the whole point of all the sermons? It's not just information, but it motivates, it influences, it transforms, and in a loose way, it inspires us. And hopefully that is the case of what we are seeing so that when we read the passage that Jordan read for us, right, in verse 20, it is nevertheless no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, right? And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live through him, right? Through him for him. So that's what we're looking at this morning. So very short point but very, uh, very necessary point. Now, that said... If we're going to understand our being able to be standing before God justified, there is this point that Paul makes to the church at Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, about this very fact, right? And the fact is, we cannot stand before God in judgment. We're not going to stand justified, if, in other words, before him in judgment. If we were to look at all these scriptures, and there are many of them, this is what the Bible would tell us. Job says it. In Job 4, we can also go to Job 9, among other passages. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And what we've been studying as we've been going throughout the Old Testament is not one of us. I mean, from the very beginning, right? We looked at it. I mean, the best possible situation is where there's no sin in the world. And what do we see? Man sin. So... In the best situation, not one has been justified. And of course, we live in a world full of sin, and we see that none are able to stand before God. The psalmist says in 100, uh, Psalm 130, in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
And of course, Romans chapter 3 is a passage that refers back to some of these Old Testament passages that makes the same point. There's none righteous, not one. So that's very clear. Here's what happens when we stop looking at Scripture and just read the passage point blank. All we have is theology. All we have is just this truth as a matter of fact. But when you let it sink in, let it digest, I want you to... I want you to see in your own minds, because I don't want to get graphic, the heinous, the wickedness of sin. It's, it's my estimation that we can be so evil that over the course of history, we have done things that are unspeakable in the name of wickedness. I cannot, I mean, my mind is going back to some of these images of what I've read of how people have been killed over history. Animals aren't even as brutal as men. So when we're talking about no one being able to stand before God, that's, it's not just limited to that, but just how wicked we can be is why we need a Savior. And that's what's important about this is that we ourselves Without the blood of Jesus, and we're going to get to his blood in a little bit, but without that blood, we have no case made. No, we cannot stand before the judge of mankind and say, I did it because I was saved. None. And the passages make that very, very clear, right? And so if we're going to look at that, then we contrast no man, and that's the focus. We're talking about humankind. So for those that were in our Bible study this morning, right, we were talking about Edom as we got into the very beginnings of the book of Obadiah, right? And Edom, very close to the word Adam, the word Adam is not just this guy's name, Adam. It's a word for humankind, a word for mankind. And what we're seeing is there's not one amongst mankind stands before God. But what do the scriptures reveal about that coming son of man. You see, that's where the Bible story, that's the reason why we're studying these Old Testament passages that tells us there is this Messiah, right? The Messiah who is going to come and restore the, the kingdom of Israel. And of course, it's not what, what people think, right? It's not going to be this physical Jerusalem, this physical Israel, but it's going to be the new Jerusalem. It's going to be this new kingdom that's going to be made without hands. That's the one that was alluded to this morning by Steve in his talk in the Lord's Supper. And so what we have then is this picture that while mankind, none has been able to do it, there is a picture of one man. And I use that word very explicitly, a man. Because when we look at Jesus, remember what the scripture says, right? That the one who is the word of God who was at the very beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14 tells us that that word became flesh. And so he takes on all the, the faculties of man and all the experiences of man. And the book of Hebrews brings that point out. Not just his deity, but his humanness, if you will. And it is this one who comes as a son of man, 
or he is known as the Son of Man. In fact, as I mentioned to you in our, our study when we were looking in the book of Daniel, right? And as we, particularly when we were studying in the book of Ezekiel, that you have this phrase, this new phrase called the Son of Man. And every time Jesus refers to himself, look it up, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, when people say, hey, you're the Christ, he goes, well, here, I'm the Son of Man, basically. Just read all those passages. And this is very crucial because on the one hand, no man is able to stand before God justified. On the other hand, there is a Son of Man, one like the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 Right? Read verses 9 through 14. And here is a picture of one who comes before the ancient of days or synonymously God. In fact, go to Daniel. Read this passage with me in Daniel and see exactly what Daniel is referring to as he's making this prophetic statement. Daniel chapter 7, picking up in verse 9 and see if you can follow along with what's being said here. Beautiful text. One of these days, we'll actually just focus in only on this passage in, in Daniel 7 and just really hammer it out. Notice again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. As I looked, thrones were placed. Right? He's got this vision, and in this vision are all these thrones. We don't know how many, but we know there's more than one. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands and thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So ESV, court sat in judgment. Um, in the latter part of verse 10. So all these seats, everyone's taking their seats. And judgment is taking place. And before all this thousands upon thousands is the ancient of days. And then the books were opened. Verse 11. I looked then because of, of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I, as I looked, the beast was killed. Its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here's this judgment. The Ancient of Days takes his place. The, the court take their place in this picture. And judgment takes place. The beast is destroyed. And then verse 13, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdoms, one that shall not be destroyed. For all that we've been studying in the book of the prophets... Who fits that picture? The Messiah. And this Messiah is likened to one who is a son of man. A human, if you will. That's the picture. This picture of in this divine, heavenly, um, spiritual realm court is the human that goes up before the Ancient of Days and sits there. Brethren, if, if you 
do, do all your Bible readings, there should be a lot of Bible passages coming into your mind. Number of them. One of the main ones that should, should hit you right between the eyes is 1 Corinthians 15. Where all the kingdom is handed over to the one who destroys death, who overcomes the evil one. The one that brings us good news. Before he hands it over to the Father. But it is this picture that while man cannot stand justified before God, the Son of Man could. And that Son of Man is Jesus Christ. That's why, again, look at in the Gospels, read the Gospels. Every time Jesus refers to himself, he's that Son of Man. And that Son of Man picture brings you back to the book of Daniel, or should. All right? So with that in mind, then... We get passages like Galatians chapter 2, passages like Philippians chapter 2, uh, Colossians chapter 1 that should help us see what is being said here. And we're going to focus in right now in, in Philippians chapter 2 before we get back to Galatians chapter 2. And I want you to see this text of this son of man. It's not stated that way because Paul does not typically refer to Jesus as the son of man. He typically refers to him as the son of God amongst other things. But in Philippians chapter 2, passage again, we're very, very well familiar with. Notice his words. Remember in verse 5, passage again, well read. Have this mind among yourselves, which, you, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your mind should go back to Genesis 3, by the way, when, when that happens. But emptied himself, taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this Jesus, who's equal to God, in his humility comes and takes the form of man, and as man humbles himself to the point of death, but he specifies the kind of death that he was having. It crucified death. That's what it means to die on the cross, to die this crucified death. And it is with this picture in mind that the Apostle Paul has when writing to the churches in Galatia about their relationship with God. Now, I want us to just take a little bit of, of time to look at the text here, right? We're going to get to Philippians chapter 3 in just a little bit, but I want you to, to hold your place in Galatians 2, but also go back to the 143rd Psalm, okay? So Galatians chapter 2, because I believe what Paul is doing is referring back to this, this passage. A lot of these writings that Paul has, he does in poetic form. So there is a, a reference, if you will, that he has back in the Psalms. And Psalm 140, did I say 142? I meant 143 if I did not. Look at Psalm 143. If I can ever get there, this new Bible is hard for me to work through. <laughs> All right. Psalm 143. Pick up on what he's saying in this passage in light of what we've been talking about so far about man before God. <clears throat> Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. 
For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. So, David, King David, has this psalm where he is pleading before God because of his enemies, right? But before he does so, he knows that he is not worthy to stand before God himself because he sins. And he makes it abundantly clear in the very beginning as he says in verse 2, Enter not in judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Now, Go back to Galatians chapter 2 because what the Apostle Paul does is he takes this verse, but he not twists it in a negative way as we talked about with the word sin, but he modifies it because he's focused in on an aspect of sin that he wants to contrast with righteousness through faith. And that's what I want us to talk about in light of this idea of being crucified with Christ. So in Galatians chapter 2, Picking up in verse 16, right, where there's a contrast between those who are born as Jews and those who are sinners, Gentiles who are sinners, right? That's the picture that is given there. So in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2, here's again what the apostle is saying. Let's see. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How many of you have the word flesh? No flesh will be justified. Because that's the word in Greek, right? The ESV doesn't do justice to that passage, by the way. Anyway. He goes on, he says in verse 17, If in our endeavors to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for, it, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So here's the thing. There were Jews 
who wanted to be justified by keeping the law of Moses. And to this group, the Apostle Paul is saying, you can't. You cannot be justified through the law. That's the whole book of Hebrews, making it abundantly clear. But there is a mindset not just amongst Judaizing teachers. There are, among, there are those that have this picture of the flesh, that through the flesh I can be righteous. I can be good enough through me, if you will, my endeavors, the human endeavors, that I could stand before God. And the whole point is that's not true. You cannot. He makes it abundantly clear here, again, in Philippians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1, among other places. So hold your place here in Galatians 2 again and go to Philippians chapter 3 and read what Paul says there. So he's making the same teachings because this is a practice that is going on amongst various churches proclaiming Christianity. Look at what he says in Philippians 3. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom, I'm often, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Walk against his crucifixion, if you will, his crucified death. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Contrast that, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even, uh, him even to subject all things to himself. Where's our righteousness? Is it in the flesh? It is in the works of the law? What Paul is not saying is that you don't keep the teachings of the law. <coughs> what he is saying is that's not how you're justified before God. Huge difference. That's why when you read in Romans chapter 5, look at those who stand justified. That's a picture, even if it's not explicitly said as being standing before God. The one who is before God, if you will, in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, those who are justified are justified by faith. Faith in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah of which the scriptures were talking about, who was going to come as a son of man, who is able to stand before the ancient of days. Jesus is the one who the book of Revelation refers to in Revelation chapter 5 as the one worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is the one who is able to die in our place because we could not in our own steadfastness stand before God. Huge contrast. That is why he's a savior. And whether we are the old person of, of the Judaizing teachers or the one who thinks that you have enough, like I've done enough. I know I can go to heaven to be saved. Right? I don't know of anyone that would say that. But yet we have the mindset among some professing Christianities that, that would say, you know, did I do enough to be saved? But of course we need to be faithful, right? That's understood. That's what happens when you walk in Christ. You're going to live as Christ. But our salvation is completely through him. Amen. 
We cannot lose sight of that. And it is this picture that we are tying our lives to. That Jesus was completely obedient to the death on the cross. And so that picture is what we are talking about this morning, right? Jesus calls us to be crucified with him, right? So as the picture is of Jesus going to that cross, he's going to be nailed to the cross. It is all that is tied to that going to the cross, his complete faithfulness, in which he is able then to die and overcome death and thus be raised on the third day. That's the good news picture. That's where the trumpet call is made when victory over your enemy has taken place. That's why the word gospel is used. Good news. Jesus overcame evil. He overcame death. And now we then, who are called to him, are called to the likeness of his crucifixion. What does that mean then? I want you to see what it means in 1 Peter 2. And this is what we're going to extrapolate upon on next Sunday. Go to 1 Peter 2 now. Again, all these passages saying the same thing, little different nuances. 1 Peter chapter 2, and notice what he's saying here, beginning in verse, well, we'll read from verse 21 through 24. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What did he do? That suffering is him going to the cross. Of course, it's more than that. But it ultimately led to that. So he led by example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 21. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but continue to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the concept that is given for us. He died for our sins that we should die to sin. All right? Now, all of this is said in that very short, dense, packaged words in Romans chapter 6. When you read Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and you read just the first part of that verse, all that we've been talking about this morning is what's unpacked in those words, right? Go back to Romans 6 again. This is, again, what we are talking about when we were dealing with the illusion of baptism, this aspect, if you will, that helps us to see what's entailed in being crucified with Christ. Romans 6, one more time, in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We will get to the last part in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But that first aspect of that statement, that those of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that's the picture of our crucifying that old man of sin. That's where the need is because we are sinners, we are not righteous to stand before God. The choice is 
that we accept the calling, the invitation of Jesus to come into the likeness of his death, the likeness of his crucifixion. And that just as he died for our sins, we die to our sins. We put the old man of sin away. That's by choice. Now, that does not mean we do it perfectly, right? We've already established over many, many sermons. If I were to ask you if you've ever sinned since becoming a Christian, you'd raise your hand. I'd say 99.99999% of people raise their hand or somewhere in that ballpark. It's universal. There's not a single person righteous. And having the blood of Jesus does not mean that you live perfect. And when I mean by living perfect, I'm talking about the fact that you live in the flesh, you go about life, that there aren't moments when you don't sin because they come. They happen to us. It's a reality. But that's not our lifestyle. Our lifestyle, our desire, our heart is that we are living perfectly, that we want to live perfectly, that we strive to live perfectly because he who is perfect died on our behalf. And he called us to put that man of sin away. That's the picture of being crucified with Christ. It's a necessity because we stand condemned without the blood of Jesus. It's a choice because he calls us and those who believe in him accept that calling. So when we get back to that phrase that we were talking about with regard to baptism, that phrase signifies our crucifying that old man of sin. When you teach other people, you know, what the baptism symbolizes beyond the commandment of our Lord that we looked at last week. You're going down into that water. You're putting that old person, that old man that's of the flesh, the one that is so heinous with sin, you're putting him to death. And it's done by the one who came to be our Savior, the grace of God that gives us salvation. Amen. It's a beautiful picture. It's the first half of the picture. Next week, God willing, we look at the other half. This is the first half of what's known as repentance. Remember the idea of repentance? It's the idea that you stop living this way, you turn about face, and you live the other way. You don't live like the man of flesh. You live like the man who is born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. There's your about face. There's your idea of repentance. There's your newness of life. That's the picture of all the prophets that talk about judgment and then salvation on the back end, whether we're talking about the coming day of the Lord where there is this judgment, but then on the back end, those who belong to him are going to have refreshing <coughs> That theme runs all the way from a national standpoint down to the individual. The old man is judged and condemned. The new man in Christ, everlasting life. That's what we're going to focus on when we come up out of the water picture of next week when we talk about Christ living in us. That's the picture where in Romans chapter 6 verse 4 where we have this newness life walk. I hope you see that. I hope you can glory in it. So we're not teaching uh, something dogmatic just because. There's ample teaching everywhere about why baptism is such a great picture of our life before Christ and coming into Christ and with Christ. 
And our invitation is for those who have not been baptized into Christ to do that. That you may have your likeness of you putting that old man of sin to death. That you may walk in newness of life. That was what the Great Commission was about in Matthew 28 or Mark 16. Right? Those who believe are going to be baptized. Those who do not, judged. That's what Scripture has said. What we have here is the why, if you will. And all the symbolism behind that why. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. And thus you're invited. You're invited to be buried with him so that you can rise up a new creature, a new creation, a new person in Christ. And brethren, by all means, as we do every week, if you need our prayers, take advantage of this opportunity to come forward and we'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. Why don't you do that as together we stand and sing?